You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, If you've been to a college campus any time in the last three or four decades, you've encountered a particular kind of street preacher slash performance artist. The preacher finds a spot on the quad to loudly condemn the morals of the student body. The student body gathers to jeer at the street preacher. The students get a little free entertainment between classes. The Christian street preacher gets to feel persecuted and nothing hits that fundy Christian G spot quite like feeling persecuted. So, Everybody wins. Anyway, a fundy Christian street preacher was going off last week on the campus of Texas Tech. There are some men that are so naive that they will actually buy a girl five margaritas. That was posted to TikTok by Zam G. First thing I want to say, apparently at Texas Tech, college girls are pouring margaritas down the throats of innocent college boys and then dragging those boys back to their dorm rooms to peg them. Has anyone told Greg Abbott about this? Is he going to do anything about it? I mean, right now, conservative parents in Texas are doing all they can to protect their boys from sex education and Disney movies. And what good will all that effort do if those innocent boys wind up getting their ass cherries busted by marauding packs of college girls wearing strap-ons once they get to Texas Tech? Governor Abbott, what are you going to do about that? But I'm not signal boosting the street preacher to start another moral panic in Texas. They've got enough of them going right now. I'm platforming this crazy lady street preacher for selfish reasons, because it seems to me that if a crazy lady street preacher knows what pegging is, and if every student at Texas Tech knows what pegging is, most of whom appear to have been born after Savage Love Readers gave the name pegging to the sex act, previously known as a woman fucking a man in the ass with a strap on dildo, which they did back in 2001, seems to me it's past time that pegging made its way into the Oxford English Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary, also known as the OED, is, quote, regarded as the accepted authority on the English language and unsurpassed guide to the meaning, history, and pronunciation of 600,000 words past and present from across the English-speaking world. That's from the OED's website. And they're not bragging. It's true. Now, quickly, for recent high school graduates who have not yet made it to Texas Tech and other new listeners, once upon a time, women were doing guys in their asses with strap-on dildos, and it was good. It was a major plot point in Myra Breckenridge, the 1970 film starring Raquel Welch, based on Gore Vidal's 1968 novel of the same name. There's a pegging scene in a book written by the Marquis de Sade in 1795, but it didn't have a name. When a guy wanted to be pegged... He had to say, hey, girlfriend, would you want to fuck me in the ass with that strap-on dildo there? Until 
a Savage Love reader suggested I harness the collective wisdom of my readers and that we all together come up with a name for girls fucking guys and their asses with strap-on dildos and pegging one. It's crisp, clean, and easily conjugated. He asked her to peg him. She loves pegging him. They pegged all night long. Now, for fans of the English language, for etymologists and lexicology fetishists, getting a citation in the OED, which I will get when pegging is entered into the OED as the originator of the word, getting that citation, it's like getting an EGOT, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony all at once. Hashtag goals. And while the Oxford English Dictionary sounds like a musty old tome, it's not like they stopped adding new words to the OED centuries ago. Staycation, coined in 2003, in the OED. Sext, 2007, in the OED. Jeggings, 2010, in the OED. Vaxxed, 2020, not only in the OED, but the OED's word of the year for 2021. Pegging, 2001, used by street preachers known to Texas Tech students, important plot point in season two, episode four of Broad City. It deserves to be in the OED too. And it's not like the OED is shy about dirty words. Fuck around since the 16th century, although originally omitted by priggish OED editors in the 19th century, has been in the OED for decades. Cunt around since the 13th century? In the OED since 1972. And in 2016, the OED added cunty, cuntish, cunted, and cunting. Quoting from ladbible.com, according to the OED, cunty is a way of describing something that is, quote, objectionable or unpleasant, whereas cuntish is for describing a person or behavior that is objectionable or unpleasant. Cunted, on the other hand, is a word for under the influence of drugs and alcohol, and finally, cunting is an intensifier to be used like fucking is. Now, I do not endorse associating the word cunt with objectionable or unpleasant things or bad behaviors. But you know, dick means dick. And I love dick, but dick also means asshole. And I'm a fan of those too. Words can have more than one meaning, some of them negative. I've known some great guys named Dick, and I know some lovely women named Karen. Oh, and a quick point of order, they're going to need to add another definition for cunted to the OED because cunted has come to mean something else entirely on gay Twitter and porn websites. And at the rate they add variations of the C word to the OED, that definition of cunted will probably make it in there before pegging. And if that happens, I'm going to be pissed. Pissed, adjective, vulgar slang. British English, drunk, intoxicated. American English, irritated, fed up, depressed. First known use, 1929, in the OED, which is on Twitter. The OED is on Twitter, at OED. Tweet at them if you feel like it. Ask those cuntish dicks why Peg isn't in there already. Quickly, before we start the show, I do not want to devote any more airtime or intro space to Madison Cawthorn, but to all the people out there who've seen that video and read those Venmo receipts and think Cawthorn might be gay, if you've met a straight guy under 30 recently, they all like to pretend they're super gay to prove they're not gay at all. They call it gay chicken. One of the results of so many arch homophobes getting outed as gay in the 1990s and early 2000s. It's a thing. 
All right, coming up on this week's show on the Magnum, we've got a What You Got with Dr. Craig Harper from Nottingham Trent University in the UK about people who own sex dolls and how or whether they're different from people, men people, mostly men people, who don't own sex dolls. His research is really interesting and we had a great convo and that's on the Magnum. Also for my Magnum subscribers this week, a new Sex and Politics drops on Thursday with Dr. Stacy Delin. We have a long conversation about the miserable state of abortion rights in this country. It is looking bleak. Sex and Politics, of course, is my new bonus podcast for Magnum subs. Also on Thursday for my Magnum subscribers, our monthly Zoom hangout sack lunch. More info about that at the end of the show. If you want all this bonus content that the Magnum subs are enjoying and you're not yet a Magnum subscriber, become one today at savage.love. All right, let's get to the show. Hi there. I am a gay cis man living in the Detroit metro area in Michigan. So my husband and I, we have an age gap of about 16 years. And recently, about two years ago, we adopted our little girl. So everything's going great. You know, we're happy. We love our life. You know, we love, you know, everything about being parents. But, you know, because there is a 16-year age gap, you know, I'm the younger one. We got married when I was 23. He was in his late 30s. So now he's in his 40s. You know, obviously, I feel like we both, because of different scenarios, you know, didn't have the opportunity to kind of explore and be promiscuous, if you will, um, with other folks, um, which is kind of where our openness has stemmed from. Um, there's a lot of other things that go into it, some jealousy, some Snapchat things, and then obviously, you know, some, some mental things that have gone on with me um, that have kind of resulted in everything. So now, you know, you know, we're kind of exploring, we're meeting people, we're doing things. Um, he travels a lot, so has more of an opportunity than I do, just because we have some rules centered around our open relationship. But I guess what it drills down to is my question. Like, is it appropriate for me to feel like it's okay for us to have openness about it, be able to talk to each other about what we're doing and not trying to hide it? Because that's kind of what we're doing right now, and it feels a little bit like we're cheating, and that's not the whole point of being open. So I guess I kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about that, kind of get your take on the whole situation. I want to be able to bring people into our home, you know, late at night, you know, when he's gone or, or even if he's home, even though my daughter would be sleeping upstairs, you know, right now we kind of have a rule against that. So it lends to me not really having a whole lot of opportunities, I guess, to explore. So I guess I'm trying to renegotiate the contract that we had. I wouldn't describe your marriage as monogamish necessarily. It sounds like it's a lot closer to an open relationship, an open marriage, but a DADT, don't ask, don't tell arrangement for your openness. And DADT can sometimes in practice feel a little bit like cheating because to avoid the telling and not just the verbal telling, but, you know, giving clues, disappearing or whatever, the physical tells, uh, you got to do a little bit of sneaking around to keep the DADT ball in the air. And I can see as to why it would feel a little unfair or imbalanced because when your husband is out of town for work, he is completely free to do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. And he can host if he's staying in a hotel by himself. And when your husband's away, you obviously can't get together with anyone else because you're taking care of your child. And then when your husband's home, you can't just disappear and not tell him where you're going or feel like you have to lie to him about where you're going because he's there. You're there. You're not as free as he is. You're not out of his sight ever. You know, when you're out of his sight, you're responsible for hundred percent of the parenting. And when he's home, you're not easily going to get 
out of his sight. So what do you do to, to renegotiate the terms of this open relationship? Well, you have a conversation with your husband about this imbalance and about how your open relationship for it to function for you is going to require a little bit more openness, honesty, directness, because for you to have the same number of adventures that he has or to have the number of adventures that you would like to have to feel fulfilled and satisfied and treated fairly in this relationship, there will be some nights when you're both in town and you're going to have a date and go someplace else and hook up with someone and you're not going to be able to hide that from him very easily to keep the DADT ball in the air. You're not going to be able to hide it because to hide that you'd have to tell a whole bunch of lies. You'd have to invent shit about where you are, what you're doing, and you don't want to have to do that. And you shouldn't have to do that. As for having guys over to the house, when your child's at home, when you're at home, when you're all at home, that's a little bit more delicate a situation. Lots of people do this. Lots of straight people do this. Lots of queer people do this. I think who your daughter is, does she get up in the middle of the night a lot? Does she come down the stairs? Does she need attention sometimes unexpectedly? Does she have a habit of opening a door and walking into a bedroom in search of a glass of water? You need to weigh all those things and then make a call and come to a mutual decision about whether this is allowed or not. And I know a lot of people in successful, healthy, open relationships where this is not allowed. Play partners, other partners, even regulars, even regular special guest stars aren't allowed to come to the house. Not for sex, sometimes come to the house to socialize for a normal dinner party or whatever, or Christmas party or whatever, but not allowed to come to the house and hook up because the other parent or both parents are concerned about what their kid or kiddos might overhear or walk into a room and see. And that's not an unreasonable limit for your husband to set. And that doesn't prevent you from having adventures. It just prevents you from being able to host. And there are lots of guys out there on the apps looking for casual sex whose profiles say can't host. So you won't be the only one who can't host and the inability to host won't limit your opportunities. And I don't think it's an undue burden. If after talking about it, your partner isn't comfortable with you having other people over, or if after talking about it, neither of you is comfortable with having other people over because your daughter is the kind of kid who pops into a room unexpectedly at 3 a.m. looking for a glass of water. If your kid is that kid, you shouldn't want to host either. I also want to say uh, when it comes to you know parents in an open relationship, who aren't you know, out to their kids about that open relationship, or even parents who are out to their kids about having an open relationship, that there is a big difference between inviting someone into your home who's a rando, you know, someone off an app that you don't know anything about and you've never met just because you've swapped some hot pics and you want to have them over, and having someone over that you've hooked up with a few times at their place that you've gotten to know a little bit, that you have a good feeling about, someone you feel that you can trust. I would come down firmly on the side of no randos in the house with you and your kid or you and your husband and your kid, no randos, only someone regular, someone you've met up with a few times, someone who's hosted you and you know, you've come to know to be a good and trustworthy person. 
So yes to casual sex, yes to sometimes parents in open relationships, having sex with other people in their house while their kids are asleep, but no fucking randos. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old furry chubby chaser who's having trouble with their sex life. I have never been able to come with another person. For context, I'm assigned male at birth, I'm non-binary, and I'm primarily interested in men. I have an anxiety disorder and low testosterone, which I'm treating, but until recently I've also had a very high-stress job, which killed my libido. I might be, and I'm not sure, demi or asexual with the kinks I mentioned. Anyway, I masturbate once a week, but I can't come consistently, and I can never do it without fantasizing about either me or a partner gaining weight. I know what button it presses, I grew up Catholic, so I know it's about recognizing temptation and giving into it by choice and owning and relishing it. Real life gaming is fraught with complications, though, as well you know, so I've never tried feeding or being fed by a partner. So far, I've just been into the fantasy and minor periodic overeating by myself. I also roleplay online and draw art for online furry friends, and it's been reaffirming, but it doesn't help me in bed yet. My last partner was my first long-term partner, and she had her own issues about sex, so we never got to mine. I've had a few friends with benefit hookups, but they didn't get past heavy petting and naked cuddles. I know this button is central to my sexual fantasies, and I feel like this is something I want to explore with a partner I can trust. I've loved my experiences with other people, but I feel like I owe myself and my future partners reliable orgasms at some point. Do I need to just meet someone, take it slow and chill? Or do I need to realize that I'm not going to meet someone, keep drawing, and get a Blue Apron subscription? Help a cousin out. I think you're setting up a kind of false choice there for yourself. The choice you present is meet someone, take it slow and chill, or realize you're not going to meet someone, keep drawing, and get a Blue Apron subscription. Seems to me that you should keep drawing, whether you have a partner or not. You can and you should get that Blue Apron subscription if that's something that would make you happy. And instead of realizing you're not going to meet someone, tell yourself, we should all tell ourselves that it's possible you might not meet someone or it might take you a while to meet someone. But then when you do, you can take it slow and chill and keep drawing and keep enjoying the Blue Apron subscription. And you need to adjust your expectations, the expectations you're placing on yourself. You seem to think you don't deserve to have a partner because you can't provide that partner with your own orgasms reliably. Well, okay, not everybody comes every time they have sex. Not everybody wants to come every time they have an erotic encounter. If feeding and gaining is something that you enjoy and that's deeply and transcendently erotic for you, you don't need to be jacking it for that to be a meaningful, intimate sexual experience for you. And if you say to your partner, I've always had difficulty climaxing. I have a vivid erotic imagination. There are things that I very much enjoy, cuddling, making out, feeding, gaining, fantasy play. These are my fantasies. What are your fantasies? Whether or not you have an orgasm can be immaterial to your enjoyment. So long as you know, you don't want to get a situation where your partner is constantly disappointed you didn't come. So you need to have this conversation with them so that their expectations of what a satisfying sexual encounter look like for you are going to be reset to match what it is that you're capable of and what it is that you enjoy. And just because orgasms are rare for you, once a week occasions for you or occurrences for you, doesn't mean that you can't be a reliable source of orgasms 
for them. You say, I, I, you know, I owe my future partner reliable orgasms. Yeah, you owe your future partner if orgasms are important to them, their orgasms, getting them off, making them come reliably. But you don't necessarily owe them your orgasms if you have difficulty climaxing. So long as they can get up and walk away from a sexual encounter with you without feeling like there's something that they failed at, something undone, or that you're unsatisfied, they can enjoy a sexual erotic encounter with you, whatever is happening during it, if you're whipping up that Blue Apron meal or enjoying it together or whatever, without you having to feel guilty or inadequate and with them feeling completely satisfied by what you two just did together. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old, 15-year-old, living somewhere in the Middle East. And I was listening to your fake call, and there was the one about the girl who loved giving blowjobs, but she was worried that Dick would talk to her. And it got me thinking, because I've been with my boyfriend for about two years now, and he loves, loves going down on me. You know, I love that it turns him on. He's ready to like, he has like a huge hard dick when he's going down on me. But for me, when I go down on him, I don't know, he doesn't do it for me anymore. Like when I was younger, I think I used to take more pride in it when I was, you know, maybe more insecure and I felt like I needed to show up more in sex. But lately I feel like as a woman and as being like, you know, fuck the patriarchy and fuck all those times I went down all those guys and didn't do shit for me and I didn't come that I've become anti-blowjob, you know? And I'm with a partner now who loves me and he treats me well. And even with other people, you know, I want to be able to be, I don't know, I want to love it. I want to be good at it again. I want to get pleasure from it the way he gets pleasure from going down on me. I know I heard that you talk about you loving to go give blowjobs. So do you have any advice for, you know, it's women maybe who feel like going down on a guy is, I don't even know, it's getting political at some point. So how do I find the love for it again? Okay, first, I assume this is a sexually exclusive relationship that you're in. How does your boyfriend, who loves going down on you, whose dick is rock hard when he's eating your pussy, how does he feel about the fact that you either aren't giving him blowjobs or it's clear that you don't enjoy giving him blowjobs? Are blowjobs something that he wants or misses? Or is he just orally? very much a bottom and a sub is doing this for you. Something that he enjoys, whether or not you do it for him, or maybe it's something he enjoys doing for you in part because you don't do this for him. If that's how he feels, well, then this isn't a problem that you necessarily need to solve. But if he misses getting his dick sucked, and if you really do sincerely miss sucking dick and feeling skilled and accomplished at that, uh, and it is a skill. And sometimes it can take guys so long to come that getting to the point where they're climaxing from your blowjob does feel like an accomplishment. Well, there's two ways you can work back from or cure for or control for the sexual politics and shitty feelings about the patriarchy that are kind of ruining sucking dick for you. And the first way is to attempt to divorce blowjobs from what feels problematic about them. That this isn't about you servicing him. This isn't about the patriarchy getting a dick into your mouth. This is about an egalitarian relationship involving two equal people, you and your boyfriend, and the 
oral sex, that kind of pleasure is mutually provided. It's reciprocal. It's not about dominance. It's not about submission. It's about joy and pleasure and giving. Or if that doesn't work for you, if the attempt to divorce blowjobs from what makes them feel problematic for you doesn't work, you could always lean into what's problematic about blowjobs. Look, I love sucking a dick. I love going down on a guy. One of the things I love about it is deeply problematic. You know, when I was young, I was called a faggot and a cocksucker. And when I'm giving head to somebody, part of me is grooving on the dominance and submission of that. The fact that, yes, I am a goddamn cocksucker. And in, the guy that I'm going down on, if he calls me a faggot or a cocksucker, even if he's my fucking husband at that moment, I kind of love it. It's almost as if we wallow in what's problematic about blowjobs. That we, uh, I recently wrote about this uh, in, in Savage Love, um, about being called a faggot during sex by another gay man. Feels less like an insult and more like an affirmation. Maybe there are women out there, maybe you're one of those women out there who get to a place or can get to a place where if what feels problematic about giving that blowjob is getting down on your knees and servicing the patriarchy, if you lean into that and exaggerate it and blow it up, and the you know just like the person calling me a faggot when I suck my husband's dick is the person who loves me most in the world is my husband, if the person who's calling you a slut at the moment or a cocksucker that you're sucking a dick is your boyfriend who obviously cares about you, who eats your pussy too, goes down on you too, in the same way my husband sucks my dick too, then maybe, as John McWhorter called it on the show, that kind of theatrical subjugation where you play into it, lean into what's problematic about it, eroticize it. And really, when you eroticize something like that, you're in charge of it. It may be the patriarchy, but you're in control of when and where you ham it up and exaggerate and camp up the patriarchy for kicks, for your kicks. Now, that might not work for you, and if it doesn't work for you, don't do it. But you ask what works for me about loving, giving head, and part of what works for me, well, a huge part of what works for me, I enjoy giving head, I enjoy sucking a dick, I enjoy giving my partner that pleasure, but a huge part of what works for me about it is revisiting what's problematic about it, what my conflicted feelings about it, how implicated I feel and exposed I feel at that moment when my partner, when I am, you know, revealing myself to be, allowing myself to be the cock-hungry faggot that when I was 15 years old, I denied that I was. Maybe you can get there too on the, you know, what's problematic about it from a you know, relationships between the sexes from the gender and patriarchy front. And if you can't, well, then you're going to have to work or maybe work twice as hard at divorcing blowjobs from what's problematic about them for you. Unless, of course, again, your boyfriend doesn't care. Unless, of course, again, your boyfriend doesn't want or enjoy the blowjobs you were giving him because he could tell you felt conflicted about them. Or maybe he's just, when it comes to oral, a service sub. And if that's who he is when it comes to oral, then Yahtzee, you won. You get to get your pussy eaten by somebody who's excited. Obviously, look at that hard dick by eating your pussy. And you aren't obligated 
to suck his dick if that doesn't make you feel just as excited. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 40s, heteroflexible, cis man calling in from the South. My wife and I are open and like to play with other couples from time to time. And to help take the pressure off of performing during those encounters, I got a prescription for ED meds. I didn't really have a problem maintaining erections, but it felt great to take a pill and have all of those worries kind of like leave my head and not have to worry about performing at all. The thing is, I really love the feeling of taking one. My regular erections are okay, but like when I take a pill, it just feels like I can pound nails into boards, if you know what I mean. Like, it's really good. So mine and my wife's sex life is great, but I have a higher sex drive than her. While she is good with like once or twice on the weekend, I really need sex daily and I masturbate during the weekday. So I've kind of got into a habit of taking a pill daily just to masturbate. So part of me thinks this is fine. Like the prescription says no more than once a day and masturbating once a day is fine. So I should be fine. But another part of me feels like that twinge of guilt when you press that button beside a door, that the handicap button that will open the door up. Like I don't need to be pressing this button. It's not for me. So Dan, is this bad? Should I stop this for either health reasons or mental reasons? Or is what I'm doing okay? So what you're telling me is that you have reliable boner privilege, and yet you are using Viagra, a drug that other men, an ED drug that other men depend on, other men who do not have reliable boner privilege depend on to get those boners. How dare you say, no, it's fine. It is fine for you to take Viagra every day. I Googled that for you. The short answer is yes. I'm quoting from the first result of the Google search. Yes, you can take Viagra or its generic form, Sildenafil every day. I'm sure I mispronounced that. Whether you need to or should depends. Since each person is different, you should consult with a doctor about what's best for you. Yeah, those Viagra prescription bottles, they do say take one a day or up to one a day. So yeah, probably okay to keep taking one a day. And lots of men take Viagra to masturbate. So you're not hurting anyone. You're not depriving anyone. You're not rubbing the noses of any men out there who do not have reliable boner privilege in your reliable boner privilege when you take a Viagra, whether you need to or not. And some people need to take Viagra, you know, for group sex or, uh, you know, a crazy sexual adventure just to, as you take it, feel you know, reassured that they're going to have that boner to feel confident in the boner and boners are, as I've described them, tinkerbells. Sometimes you got to believe you got to clap, 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 clap for that boner and it'll be there. It'll live and be strong. And Viagra, the pill can help a lot of men with that. Viagra is clapping for that tinkerbell boner. You're not doing anything wrong. You're also not doing anything wrong when you push the button that opens the doors, even if you are capable of opening those doors yourself. Enjoy the Viagra. Enjoy the door swinging open. Hi, Dan. I'm a cishet black woman in my mid-40s dating a recently divorced heteroflexible white man in his mid-50s. As a survivor, this is the first relationship I felt safe in. We have a lot in common, love spending time together. However, sexually, I feel we are struggling. There is intimacy, hand-holding, cuddling, etc., he is taking Coxal for depression, and I understand that one of the side effects is erectile dysfunction. 
he's gone over the study and statistics and stuff. Um, he is a medical professional. And I've let him know that penetration isn't the only way to have pleasure, uh, that we can focus on making each other feel good. And we've tried, like he knows that I have sensitive nipples and I can orgasm through that. And he's very excited of the fact that I can have multiple orgasms. However, he's also shared with me that before dating me, he would hook up with a couple of guys, just oral, no penetration, and he stopped taking meds so he could have an erection. I let him know I'm okay with him, you know, exploring his by side. I think it's something that as our relationship progresses, we could open up our relationship. However, during the times that we've been intimate, like using toys for me, using anal toys for him, he openly talks about fantasizing about giving oral to a man or me pegging him and giving oral to a man. But our playtime is very few and far between. And it's all centered on him getting and maintaining an erection. If there's no erection, then we don't really have any intimate time. And I'm wondering if there is a way to get him to see that there's more to sex than having an erection. When he does talk about having sex, sometimes he talks about wanting to hook up with twinks. And he rarely talks about finding me attractive when he is feeling sexual. He says that since his divorce and being with me, he feels comfortable talking about exploring his spy side. But I'm wondering, how can I be supportive without feeling like he's not into me? And is it possible to have a sexual play with someone without them having an erection? Yeah, it's absolutely possible to enjoy sex play, have an enjoyable sexual encounter with someone who doesn't have an erection. But it's not a generic someone that we're talking about. It's this guy. And if despite your reassurance and despite your pleas for you two to be intimate and to have sex, whether or not he has an erection and for him to get you off, whether or not he has an erection, he isn't listening. He doesn't seem capable of it. He doesn't seem interested in having sex with you or a sexual encounter with you or any sort of eroticism or play with you unless his dick gets hard and stays hard. And he's made it your job to be, you know, I was talking on an earlier call about clapping for Dick, that dicks are like Tinkerbell. Sometimes you got to clap for them. And he wants you to be the cheering section, the, the stands in the stadium cheering for his dick the whole time. And while you guys are attempting to get his dick hard, all he talks about, it seems, are sexual encounters with men, with twinks, sucking dick, getting fucked. And he has nothing to say about you or being attracted to you. Uh, I think you should break up with him. It's wonderful that you feel safe with him. I'm sure he's a nice guy. But the longer this goes on, the longer he's incapable of engaging with you sexually and erotically in whatever way he can, as long as you're with him and whenever you guys are engaged in dirty talk, you're verbalizing your desires, you're not really present for him, erotically, that's going to wear away at your self-esteem. So, so I'm not saying you should burn this down or engineer a conflict or a huge beef or a fight as an excuse to end this relationship. And it may be possible that he was a really good person for you to be in a relationship with for the time that you've been in a relationship with him. You say that you're a survivor. He's the first person that you've dated since 
a traumatic experience. I hope you've gotten therapy. I hope you've gotten help. He may have been exactly the right person for you to date at this time, but for this time, not for all time, because he's incapable of meeting your needs. And so he was a good transitional boyfriend, a good transitional partner. He helped you get back into the swing of dating and engaging with somebody romantically and sexually. But yeah, it doesn't sound like it's working out or like it's going to work out. So that doesn't mean you have to end it right now if you're still getting something out of this relationship. But I don't think you should be looking at this relationship as having any sort of long-term potential. And these may not be problems that you can solve because it sounds like you've already said all the right things. It sounds like you've already said to him everything that I would encourage you to say to him to decenter hard dicks from sex so that you guys can still enjoy sex with toys and rolling around and being intimate and engaging with each other and getting you off. And none of that interests him so much. What he's interested in is his dick and twinks, which are fine things to be interested in, but your needs aren't going to get met by this man or in this relationship over the long term. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a cishet 41-year-old poly guy from Costa Rica, and I want your opinion about something. About six months ago, I met this woman at the first poly munch since COVID started. We started dating, and I was really all over the moon. Uh, she's attractive, smart, witty. My wife was delighted with her. Her husband is a great guy and seems to think the same about me. Uh, one thing is that communication with her other than face-to-face -face was difficult because she did not like texting at all and she would reply very short sentences two or three days later. That's something that even her husband complains about. So pretty much outside of her dates, we will just uh, need like three days to negotiate the next time we will see each other. Also, about every two or three dates, we will actually have some conversation about how we were feeling and the degree of honesty and communication was refreshing. Though, uh, a bit over a month ago, she expressed that she was feeling some uneasiness about the whole poly thing, so it did not come totally as a surprise when she ended things last week. I know that everybody gets done one time or another, but what bothers me is that she ended it through a short text that really felt like some sort of formality to get it over with from someone who doesn't like texting. I don't know if it is too old-fashioned of me at this point to expect to get dumped face-to-face, -face, especially as she says she want to keep a close friendship once we mourn the breakup. We even work less than a mile away from each other. She could have just asked me for lunch or coffee or dinner or whatever and tell me there. So, Dan, tell me your opinion. Is it reasonable to expect to be dumped face-to-face -face, or at the very least through a video or phone call where you can hear the other person's voice and all it uh, communicates that text just doesn't? Or am I just too butthurt about being dumped by someone I really like and I'm just holding to a reason to be mad? Uh, look at it this way. Yeah, she probably should have met up with you face-to-face -face if she wanted to dump you, at least called you, not texted you. That's a shitty way to end a relationship, especially if you hope to salvage your friendship out of it. But when you do get together, if she's at all sincere about wanting to 
salvage a friendship out of the wreckage of this relationship, you'll have something to talk about. You'll be able to say, after you reconnect, you know, I was a little butthurt at first. Everyone's butthurt when they get dumped. No one ever feels like they got dumped in just the right way. If she'd done it face to face, if she'd made a dinner date with you, imagine that. Instead of dumping you via a brief text, she made a dinner date with you and dumped you before the first course arrived. You might then be butthurt about having to sit there throughout an entire meal with someone who had just dumped you. You might, if she dumped you at dinner, had called me asking why she didn't dump you via text just to keep it neat and clean and brief. So yeah, you'll have something to talk about when you meet up in the future. You'll be able to maybe laugh about being dumped via text by someone that you could barely get a text message out of when you were in a relationship. But when she wanted out of that relationship, man, she fired up that text message and got it to you quickly. If you can both laugh about it, then you're going to have a friendship. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining us for this What You Got, Dr. Craig Harper, a senior lecturer in psychology at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. Hey, Dr. Harper, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Uh, really good. Thanks for jumping on the phone. So uh, what do you got? Uh, we've been doing some uh, some really cool research, actually, I think, um, into sex doll ownership. So um, I, I guess we're aware of kind of lots of people are having lots of kind of uh, emotive responses to things like sex dolls and of associating it with risk and having this idea of kind of people who own sex dolls being sexually deviant and things like that. But there's no evidence for any of this. There's nothing at all. We've got lots of people advocating for kind of criminalization, things like that, but nothing, no data whatsoever. Um, so what we decided to do was to, to test some of these ideas. We had three different models that we were looking at. So is it possible that sex dolls are protective against sexual risk? Do they increase sexual risk or are they just as they're described, sex toys that people use for sexual gratification, sexual enhancement, and things like that. So we, um, yeah, we've been testing some of those ideas out with sex doll owners and comparing those scores to people who don't own sex dolls. Okay, so quickly, let me jump in. I want to clarify uh, the things that people emote about a lot when they talk about sex dolls are that they're going to contribute to you know, patriarchal, misogynistic attitudes that women are objects that should do what you want them to do and be right where you want them to be and be used exactly how you want to use them. And that sex dolls, if they take off and they really, you know, we talk about sex dolls a lot more than any of us, I think have encountered them in the wild, but if they were to take off, it would make an already bleak situation for women culturally, sexually, romantically, even bleaker. That's what you meant by the emoting people are doing about sex dolls. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the um, that's the key kind of driver, I guess, that's driving a lot of social discussions about this. But like I say, there's no there's no data that supports any of that. There's no um, research that that supports that. Um, and what a lot of these arguments are doing is they they're arguing, like you say, from emotion. They're they're thinking about kind of the the situation that women find themselves in at the moment, and thinking about what the kind of slippery slope could be if these dolls take off. Well, it's a situation women have been in for millennia and it's a situation that women today have, you know, for the last century have fought really hard to uh, make less bad and 
people, women, men, myself included, don't want to see things get worse. Although that does seem to be the motto of the 21st century, things get worse. All right. So what did you find in your research? Uh, well, I guess, I, I suppose the interesting thing really is that we found very little. So we compared the scores, like I said, to of sex doll owners. We had 158 sex doll owners, and we recruited a comparison group of 135 people who don't own sex dolls. These are all men. And we were looking at whether they differed on things like their level of sexual fantasizing, what they fantasize about, um, their personality traits, how well they function emotionally, their attachment styles, um, but importantly, how they view women and uh, do they have these things called offense-supportive cognitions, these kind of pro-criminal attitudes that might be associated, at least theoretically, with uh, with sexual offending. And and like I say, in, in the main, we found very few differences. We did see, um, the, interestingly, that people who own sex dolls were less likely to report being aroused by sexually aggressive scenarios. So we take that as an indication, or the literature as well takes that as an indication of them being less likely to act on any potential kind of offense-supportive fantasies that they might have. But interestingly, people who didn't own sex dolls also had the higher levels of uh, biastophilic fantasy. So people who uh, don't own sex dolls seem to have slightly higher levels of fantasies around kind of coercive sex. So again, we're, we're seeing this idea potentially, and this is all kind of potentially at the moment because this is relatively small sample sizes, but an initial look at, at doll ownership of sex dolls being maybe protective against sexual aggression. In terms of personality, again, we found very few differences. People who own sex dolls were more likely to have um, obsessive compulsive personality traits. So they have this kind of desire for control or for order, maybe. And that might be indicative of the fact that a lot of the guys that were in our sex doll owner sample had really poor quality past relationships. And we've also got some qualitative data, actually, some interview data that seems to suggest that people seek out sex dolls as a form of sexual outlet a lot of the time because of these past negative experiences with, with uh, relationships with, with women. We did also find that men who own sex dolls have lower levels of uh, sexual self-esteem as well. So again, kind of tapping into this idea of poor quality uh, sexual histories, maybe uh, kind of driving people into using sex dolls uh, or owning sex dolls. But we didn't find any evidence whatsoever that sex dolls increase levels of sexual aggression risk. And you did find that in your control group, in the sample of men who didn't own sex dolls, more evidence of sexually aggressive attitudes or shitty, shittier men were, were in the average, in the mean. Well, I, I guess that, that would be one way of putting it. So but, we should all uh, go out there. We should, we should be looking for guys. Women should be looking for guys who own sex dolls because they're the safer bet. Well, the one, the one thing I would flag is that, that that particular variable was not significantly different between the two groups. It was a slight difference, but, but statistically indistinguishable. So I, I'd be, I wouldn't necessarily be saying to women that they should be going out finding guys with sex dolls. That wouldn't be the case. But, uh, but certainly from a, from a policy perspective, from a kind of social discussion perspective, the idea that dolls increase sexual aggression risk doesn't seem to be evident in our data. Okay. I mean, there's so much to think about and attempt to unpack here. You know, my hunch, you know, one of the things when we talk about sex dolls, we're also talking about sex robots. And usually that discussion about the coming of the sex robots, which always seems to be 20 years, 30 years out on the horizon, that gets sort of rolled into the discussion of the sex dolls that are on the market now. And the attitude often is, you know, this is going to take the place of human relationships um, that, that people might have. But my feeling, you know, one of my 
takes on the coming of the sex robots is it's going to make a kind of relationship possible for a lot of people who are socially at a disadvantage or socially maladapted in some way. Not that they're violent, not that they're aggressive or want to harm or control women, but just there are people out there who want partners who can't find them, who've tried and failed, and it's a miserable experience for them. And this may be an outlet, a, a way for someone to have a partner who might not otherwise have a partner. And that seems to be, you know, that hunch of mine seems to be borne out a little bit by your data or by what you found. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that does seem to be the case in our, well, so there's, there's hints of that in our quantitative data, in this survey data. Um, there's much more of that actually on our in, in our interview data. So that, uh, that research is currently being kind of reviewed at journals. So that was led by uh, my colleague, Rebecca Leesley. Um, but we're, uh, we're seeing evidence of that in the in the interview data as well. So kind of themes around kind of seeing deficits in in themselves, uh, particularly among doll owners, in terms of interacting with women, but also seeing deficits in in other people. So thinking about kind of what they have in their mind as being the ideal relationship, and and kind of having living partners maybe not living up to those expectations, mm-hmm. um, may, may be a, a driver. For, for some of these guys in seeking sex doll ownership. Um, what I would say is that it's, it's really important for us to not think about sex doll owners as kind of one group. There are lots of different motivators for why people own or use sex dolls. Obviously, for, for a lot of people, for the vast majority of people, um, they'll be using these or owning these uh, items for sexual gratification. For others, like you've kind of alluded to, it will be about relationships and about emotional support. For others, we've got quite a lot of evidence, actually, about some people just owning sex dolls to have someone around, so not necessarily having a relationship with that doll or having a, a pseudo-relationship with that doll, but just to have someone around. Equally, for things like uh, photography, it seems to be quite common for people to have have dolls for kind of artistic reasons as well. Um, so I think we have this idea in our mind, this kind of heuristic view of why do people own sex dolls? And we see this through a kind of, I don't know, a deviant sexuality kind of lens where actually there's, there's a multifaceted, there are multifaceted reasons for people owning these kinds of dolls. It does seem to me that if you regarded sex doll as a sex toy for men, that there are sometimes, there's sometimes even in sex positive communities, even among people who are comfortable with sex toys in general, there's this stigma attached to sex toys that you fuck a, a flashlight or, you know, a, a, an orifice. And you know what a sex doll is, is a flashlight attached to a mannequin. And I, even among women I know who are comfortable with the idea of there being insertion toys for women, vibrators, dildos, they're very uncomfortable around the idea of there being insertion toys for men that a fleshlight is somehow inherently creepier or grosser or more disgusting for a person to use than an insertable vibrating dildo. And I find that disconnect uh, and that discomfort among some fascinating. But what I actually wanted to add two more questions before I let you go. And you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Where did you find the sex doll owners who are willing to participate in the study? So it's, it's a really good question. So there are lots of different communities online um, of guys who, who own sex dolls. We, we were really keen not to identify people. So we're, I, we're, there are kind of forums. We, we were very clear that we wouldn't name forums publicly of uh, where we found these, uh, these individuals because naturally they are quite kind of protective about their, their, their identities. But there are kind of relatively high profile forums online that you can kind of uh, ask people to, to take part in this kind of, of research. And, and naturally because of the, the stigma that is around sex doll ownership, they are a little bit sometimes kind of hesitant, I guess. And we, we've, we've tried really hard to, 
develop some of these relationships with uh, with guys on forums, really trying to kind of learn what they're about and why they're owning sex dolls and and kind of really trying to to, to tell their story, I guess, as well as the story that society is, is trying to tell about them. And I think that that kind of involvement of, of guys who use these uh, these sex dolls is really going to be important as we kind of progress this research over the next couple of years. So inevitably, when you have these conversations about sex dolls, uh, one of the things that comes up is sex dolls, you know, lumps of latex or polystyrene or whatever that look like a child, yep. a child sex doll. That makes yep. people insanely uncomfortable. That makes me uncomfortable. The other thing that makes people uncomfortable is when you ask, you know, if pedophiles were less likely to rape children, if sex dolls were available that looked like children, would that not be for the good? as uncomfortable as the ideal of a sex doll that looks like a child makes all of us. Yep. Have you thought about that? Are you doing any research in that area? Uh, we have, yeah, we do have data on, uh, on childlike dolls. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about the the results at the moment because we are still having those data reviewed. So we do have a we do have a preprint. If people want to follow me on on Twitter, I'm more than happy to to share that. I've shared that uh, that preprint relatively recently, actually. Okay. It sounds like you're still collecting your thoughts on it. Um, but will you please come back after that paper is out? 100. percent Yeah. All right. Where can people find you online to learn more about your research, and where can people find the paper that you've just released on sex dolls? Uh, well, I guess the best way to uh, to find me online is through Twitter. Uh, so I'm at Craig Harper 19. That's Craig Harper 19. Um, and the paper uh, on sex dolls is published now in the Journal of Sex Research. So if you go to their website, it's available open access. You just go to their website, search for sex doll owners and psychology, and you'll find our paper on the search bar. Dr. Craig Harper, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at Nottingham Trent University of the United Kingdom. Thank you so much, Dr. Harper, for getting on the phone today. That was a fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a uh, 33-year-old cishet guy who is engaged to my wonderful fiance. Planning on getting married next year. Things are going really well in our relationship overall, but uh, there's something that that wasn't an issue before, and for some reason is now becoming an issue, I think, probably because I'm in therapy and working through some things, uh, which is that I don't know what to do about the fact that I am keeping a secret from her. Before we ever met, I occasionally frequented massage parlors with certain extra services at the end, and uh, I had conflicted feelings about doing that um, prior to us being together, and then when we were together, I wasn't doing that and then one time you know it's been a couple of years now since that happened but one day she was out of town i had a couple of drinks and i decided that i was going to go over and go to one of those places again i never told her about that it was at a time in our relationship when we weren't as serious as we have since become or we like ever moved in together or lived together or really were planning a long-term future together i never told her that that's something that I that happened in my past. I don't think I'm going to tell her. I'm wondering if the ethical thing uh, in this situation isn't to tell her uh, about this. I don't think it's ever going to happen again. I feel very deeply ashamed about it. And I know that it was not something that uh, agrees with my own personal morals. 
but I don't know whether or not it makes sense to tell her and burden her with that information or if I can keep this to myself and hang on to that and bear that burden my own self. The hand jobs, the massages with happy endings that you got prior to meeting your girlfriend, your fiance, pardon me, your future wife, if you don't fuck this up, you don't have to disclose those. I don't think you even have to feel bad about those or should feel bad about those. If you made a little bit of an effort to make sure you weren't going to a place where the people performing these happy endings were being exploited or coerced and you tipped well and you were respectful and practiced good hygiene, nothing to be ashamed about. All right, this one time when your girlfriend or then fiance was out of town and you were feeling weak and you got drunk and low point of the relationship and you got a happy ending massage again, how bad should you feel about that? Well, you should feel bad. Should you disclose it? Should you shift, as Esther Perel calls it, the burden of knowing onto your fiance's shoulders? I don't think so. I think you spare her this. I think instead of allowing the guilt to motivate you to disclose, you put the guilt in harness to motivate you not to do this again, not because you should feel tremendously ashamed of yourself. Shame is terrible. Shame is something people often treat with alcohol. And then, you know, when you try to drown your shame in alcohol, you often wind up doing the very thing that the shame prompted you to get drunk about. So let go of the shame. If you never want to do this again, let go of the shame. Because I think the shame puts you in a position where you're likelier to do this again. But think about it. Maybe your girlfriend early in the relationship did one or two things that she regrets that she isn't going to tell you about. And likewise, you probably have done more than just this hand job that you regret and you're grateful your girlfriend didn't find out about and didn't know about. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to allow someone to have their illusions about us. Your girlfriend may have this illusion that you are the sort of man who would never go to a massage parlor and get a happy ending massage. Okay, let her have that. Maybe that's a gift you can give her along with the gift of not shifting the burden of knowing onto her shoulders. If you are indeed sure you're never ever going to do this terrible, but not that terrible thing ever again. Hey Dan, late 20 something bisexual female on the West coast. My question has to do with dating after grief. I lost my father suddenly last fall and my grandfather, who was like a dad, passed away of dementia a couple months later. So it's been several months. I've done a lot of work, kind of pulled myself away and waited until I felt like I was ready to date. And I really still feel like I am and have been doing pretty well. And I was seeing a guy for about a little over a month and he knew from day one that I had lost my dad, which was not my plan. It just kind of slipped out. But a month and a half in, he, you know, tells me he wants to be friends and that's fine. But kind of like threw in my face saying that I shouldn't be dating right now because that's a lot to put someone else through, which 
maybe I could understand that if I treated him like my on-call therapist, but there was not a single time that I called him and asked him for emotional support. Um, there was one time I had canceled a date and said that I got my dad's autopsy results finally and was just too distraught, and he chose to spend time with me anyway. Basically, you know, there's no manual out there for when you should see other people, but I just don't know when I would divulge this type of information to somebody, like when would be the right time, you know, like, is that something other people should know about me so they can decide whether or not that's like a cost of admission they want to deal with. But like, how soon, you know, like I said, do you divulge that information and that you've been through back-to-back trauma and my family's small. That was basically half of my family gone in one fell swoop. So yeah, I just, I would like to put myself out there and keep dating other people. I feel like I have a lot of love to give and receive and that in between my grief spells, I'm relatively well adjusted. So yeah, I would love to get your thoughts. I'm so sorry for your loss. Devastating to lose your father. And then in short order, also your grandfather who played a very paternal role in your life. My heart goes out to you. It sounds like you've been very thoughtful about getting through some of your grief, doing some of the major work around processing that grief before you got out there and began to date again. Seems to me that, you know, unless you're misrepresenting how you comported yourself in this relationship, unless you were making enormous demands on the the time and the emotional energy of someone you had just met and begun to date, which I don't think that you were doing. Yeah, I don't think you did anything wrong here. Sounds to me not that you asked this guy to do more for you than he could handle. Sounds to me that this guy just couldn't handle it. That it wasn't that you were going to pieces in front of him constantly uh, about your recent losses, but that dating someone who had recently lost a parent, dating someone for whom death and mortality was a palpable and present presence, I guess, if I may say it like that, was more than he could handle. He wasn't telling you in that moment anything about you. He was telling you something important, if not everything, about him. You've been through some shit recently, some tough shit that life throws at people. He hasn't been through any of that shit from the sound of things. And being with you made him think about that shit and he couldn't handle it. So, yeah, you blurted something out on the first date that you recently lost your dad. He blurted something out when he was ending the relationship that your grief, your recent losses somehow disqualify you from putting yourself out there and dating and you'd done something unfair to him and dating him in this condition. Yeah, no. And when it comes to dating in the future, this is just a fact about you. You've recently lost your dad and your grandfather. That's something that often comes up. You know, if people have a formal first date, they sit down to dinner. People often, young adults, will talk about their families, their parents. I know it always comes up if you're on a gay date, because one of the things that invariably comes up on a gay date is, so how are your parents about it? You know, 30, 40 years ago, that would come up on a gay date and you would swap horror stories about being rejected by your family, about, you know, being disowned by your parents after you came out. It was rare 
if on the date you found yourself sitting across the table from somebody whose parents loved and supported them or had come around and now loved and supported them. And so that conversation, like, how are you and your parents? How do your parents feel? Did you come out to your parents? Parents were always present in those early date conversations, gay men. Parents are often present in those date conversations between straight people, so I'm told. Talk about where you're from, talk about whether, you know, how many siblings you have, talk about, you know, where your parents live, where you grew up. And then it's just a simple fact, an irrelevant fact that came up in the natural flow of conversation. And imagine this guy, this guy who just dumped you for this reason. Imagine if you hadn't told him that your dad and grandfather recently passed away and you dated him for six months, nine, how long were you expected to date him before disclosing that fact? And then six, nine, 12, 16 months in, he walked in on you sobbing because you were having a moment, because you were grieving, and you told him then, at that moment, this guy, this guy who broke up with you maybe for disclosing this too soon, that same guy would be angry at you, upset at you for withholding this information from him for so long. I don't think you could win with that guy is what I'm saying. So I don't think you should sit there parsing what you did, trying to figure out how, what you did and how you did it wrong and the mistake that you made. You didn't make a mistake. It came up when it came up. The mistake you made was dating that guy. Hey, Dan. I am a bisexual female in the West in a polyamorous relationship. I know kitchen tables aren't really your thing, but we do tend to find it really nice. My mother is very conservative Lutheran, mostly when it's really convenient for her. And due to the fact that she could not be nice to my husband and I's partner, I finally broke down and told her what was going on and she has reacted pretty badly, but now just wants to move on and pretend like nothing happened. So anyways, my question really is, how do you talk about polyamory with your parents, especially if they're religious, and explain to them that your kids are getting more love now, not less? and that it doesn't have anything to do with my husband and I having a bad relationship because we have a great relationship. Wait, what is this about kitchen tables not being my thing? You're referring to kitchen table polyamory, which is a kind of polyamory where everyone's so cool with each other's partners that they can hang out at the kitchen table, share a meal, have a conversation, hash out a Google calendar together. Not only am I fine with kitchen table polyamory, I'm a practitioner of that particular brand of polyamory. I can't count the number of breakfasts I've made and served and enjoyed with uh, my husband and his boyfriend at our kitchen table. All right, what to do about your mother? You came out to your mother as Polly and she flipped. She had a really bad reaction. Now she wants to pretend that nothing happened. All right. Bear with me here. I think you should play along. I think you should pretend along with your mom. 
She was worried when you came out to her as Polly that that meant your marriage is falling apart. She was worried about who these strangers are that you've welcomed into your home, your other romantic partners. She was worried about how your kids are doing in this environment. Let her come over. Let her pretend that she didn't have that freak out that pissed you off so much. Let her hang out at your kitchen table with you and your husband and your other partners and your kids. Let her see with her own eyes that your marriage is strong, that you and your husband are thriving in your open polyamorous marriage. Let her come to know your other partners, not as these threatening abstractions, but as loving, kind, compassionate human beings. And let her see with her own eyes that your kids, her grandkids are loved and doing fine. You know, if you make mom eat shit, mom apologize, mom take it all back, if you make that a condition on your mom coming over, you may never get, you know, your mom to take it back because your mom won't see with her own eyes that you and your husband are fine, that your kids are thriving, that your other partners are wonderful people who are making a contribution. So let her see that. Play along, pretend along. And then after a year, I'm a big proponent of giving your parents a year after you come out to them about whatever to have their freak out. Okay, instead of giving your mom a year to have her freak out, give your mom a year to have her pretend that she didn't have a freak out. After that year, sit down with your mother at your kitchen table, just you and mom this time, and say, all right, now's the time for us to talk about this. Now's the time for us to talk about what you said, the reaction you had when I came out to you as Polly, because it hurt and it still hurts. And I would hope that now that you've seen that we're good, me and my husband, now that you've seen that our other partners are wonderful people and that our relationships, our polyamorous relationships are good for us, good for your grandkids, good for our kids, that you're ready to apologize that we can talk about this a little bit more and maybe a little bit more in depth and I'm happy to answer any other questions you might have. And then you know what you're going to get from your mom? Potentially likelier to get from your mom. If you give her that year to play pretend, if you play along with the pretense for a year, you're likely to get the sweetest thing one human being can get from another human being, which is your mom looking you in the eye and saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Hey, Dan, Nancy, uh, and youth. So I just had a question about cum, basically. So I'm just wondering if there's anything you can tell about a guy's like health or a penis ever's health, STI status, whatever, from, from their cum. Like, I know that I sucked a lot of dick, and I know that there's a lot of variety in loads when it comes to, like, you know, viscosity and taste. But is there anything, you know, like if you have gonorrhea, does it make your cum taste different? Like, is there anything about that that can give you kind of a a heads up? If you could taste gonorrhea in someone's cum, by the time you tasted it, it would be too late. You'd already have been exposed to the gonorrhea in that person's cum. No, 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 no. I don't have anything on this because there is nothing on this. STIs do not change the flavor of a person's ejaculate, the flavor of a person's semen. So no, we talk about when it comes to earthquakes here in the Pacific Northwest, early warning systems to give you a little advance notice of an earthquake. Gonorrhea flavored cum would be kind of a way too late warning system. By the time you tasted it again, 
you'd already been exposed. So yeah, that's not a heads up that's going to do you any good. If you're sucking a lot of dick, if you're swallowing a lot of loads, you should be getting regular STI screenings. There's no such thing as an STI spunk sommelier. You can't get that accreditation. You'll just have to keep getting those STI screenings. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. Straight cis male here calling from the UK. I've got a question. I, I'm going to my first ever fetish event this summer. And I really like the idea of it. I really like the idea of being at an event where everyone's in fetish gear and where I'm dressed up. But I don't know what to wear. Like, I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not a fashionista. I just don't, just don't know. I don't know where to start. So have you got any tips? How do you find out what to wear? How do you find things? <laughs> you don't have to be a fashionista to go to a fetish event. It helps to be a fetishist. The first question I would put to you is what kind of fetish gear turns you on? The next place you might want to look is the website of the event that you're going to. Does it have a dress code? Does it have suggested fetish garb or items or materials? See what it says and then go shopping. Fetish gear can be expensive. Outfitting yourself from head to toe can be expensive. If you're comfortable with a little exposed skin, getting a few pieces, but mostly otherwise being naked. You know, if it's a rubber event, rubber fetishist event, getting rubber shorts and a rubber harness is going to be a lot cheaper than getting a made-to-order custom rubber head-to-toe cat suit. So get the rubber shorts, get the rubber harness, get the boots. That'll be cheaper and you'll feel comfortable hanging out. What you don't want to do is go to a fetish event in no fetish gear. Most big fetish events have minimum required dress codes. You got to be in some gear, some fetish attire to get in. Otherwise, the event will be crowded with straight guys in cargo shorts and t-shirts and khaki pants who are there to gawk or other queer people who are there to gawk and not there to be a part of the atmosphere and the scene that all of these fetishes gathering together are helping to create by and for each other. So yeah, what are your kinks? What are your fetishes? What would it turn you on to wear? That's a good place to start. The website, another good place to start. Also, who are you going with? Do you have kinky friends? Are you going with a crowd of other fetishists? Most fetishists who own a lot of gear are happy to share that gear with others. Not most. Some, a good number, are happy to share their gear with others, with newbies, with close friends, not with random strangers who happen to be newbies, to wear out to events. So ask your friends who are going what they're wearing and ask them if they have any suggestions or anything they might want to loan to you to wear. But really, the place to start is what would it turn you on to wear? What are your kinks? What are your turn-ons? What are your fetishes? Not your outfits that you might wear as a fashionista, but the gear or clothing that you might wear to reveal something about who you are erotically, what turns you on. Start there. Hi, Dan. I recently decided to finally splurge on a beautiful stainless steel butt plug, which I love so far, but it's usually really cold because it's stainless steel and it's just sitting in a box in my room. And I wanted to know if you 
or your listeners had any recommendations for like safe, efficient ways to warm up the butt plug before I play with it. The quickest and most efficient way to warm up a butt plug is to put it in your butt. But you want to warm up your butt plug before you play with it, before you put it in your butt. You don't want to put it in a pan of scalding water, but a pan of warm water, that is a good way to warm up a stainless steel insertion toy sitting on it without putting it in your butt. Also a good way to warm it up. If you know you're going to play with it later in an hour or two, you're sitting on the couch watching television right now alone or with the person you're going to play with, just put it under your leg or put it in your pants and let your natural body heat bring it up to your temperature. It'll take a while. You know, a solid stainless steel butt plug can take hours to warm, but it'll be worth it. And if you're going to be sitting on the couch anyway, you'll have the time. Oh, and one last pro tip about warming up a stainless steel butt plug. Don't put it in the microwave. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Nude Eel tweets, the conversation with Christine Emba was infuriating. Instead of saying what she meant, she must have said, I'm just asking questions 500 times. She disguised her run-of-the-mill sexual conservatism and contempt for non-normative sex as neutral curiosity. I enjoyed my conversation with Christine Emba, author of Rethinking Sex, a provocation more than many of my listeners did based on Twitter responses. But I don't think Emba, to her credit, styles herself as a neutral observer in her book, if you take the time to read it. She's been out there dating and mating herself, so she quite literally has skin in this game too. Again, I enjoyed the book, and it didn't read like a view from 30,000 feet to me. It read like a report from the trenches. Stephen Forrest tweets, need to differentiate between tainted consent due to power dynamics, fear, coercion, and simple next-day regret akin to eating junk food and the next day saying, wish I hadn't done that, as opposed to, I felt obligated to do that. Hashtag Savage Lovecast, hashtag Christine Emba. I'm actually going to side with Emba on this. Sex you regret, you're going to feel that more than a bag of chips you might regret. The one point I'd wished I'd made to Emba about bad sex during our conversation is that it's not always something that someone else did to us. Sometimes bad sex is something we do with someone else. Savage Lovecast listener, Magnum subscriber, and brand new bride, Rachel Cunliffe tweets, Hey, fake Dan Savage. I apologize if I mispronounced your name there, Rachel. Hey, fake Dan Savage. Thought you and Savage Lovecast listeners would appreciate this photo from our wedding taken right before our celebrant reminded us that every relationship will fail until one doesn't, and we won't know which one that one is till one of us is dead. Wrote our own ceremony and we had to have you in it, Dan. Thank you, and congrats to Rachel and Jamie. Thank you so much for including me in your ceremony, and please save me a piece of cake. And here's wishing you both every success. Not rooting for you to cross the finish line in the funeral home anytime soon, but here's hoping your marriage is a long and happy one. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and a big thank you to everyone who posted your social media accounts this week about the show. We really appreciate the way our listeners help get the word out. All right, now listener response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response called episode 809. A caller went on a date with a woman who went out of her way to claim that she was not transgender, even though the caller hadn't asked. And then after some internet sleuthing, the caller found out that actually this woman was transgender. Dan, you suggested that maybe this woman had lied in the past about being trans, but I'm wondering 
maybe she wasn't lying either when she said she was trans or she wasn't trans. Maybe she's a detransitioner, female to male to female. Or maybe she used to describe herself as trans because at the time she identified as non-binary, but then later kind of came around and said, eh, maybe it just makes more sense to describe myself as a cis woman. Hi, Dan. This is a reaction to the guy who was wondering if he should tell his daughter about the triad relationship he's having with his partner and another guy. Don't bring up mommy and daddy breaking up or not breaking up in that conversation because maybe she hasn't even considered that mommy and daddy would break up. And bringing that up even in the context of saying we're not going to break up puts this idea in her head. Just talk about the situation as it is and that it's all good and who he is and that should be enough. If she has questions, you can answer them that way. Just uh, go from your heart, go from honesty, and I think that will work out for the best. I'm not a big proponent of uh, keeping things from kids that are actually pretty normal and loving. Hello, Dan. In episode 809, you quoted Christine Ember as saying, a craving to dominate is generally less healthy than a desire to express affection. This is a classical logical fallacy in the false dichotomy. She's assuming that the craving to dominate and the desire to express affection are mutually exclusive. In my experience, that's the exact opposite. In my casual sex partners, it's those Dom top daddies who check in before, after, and between encounters. This was especially true when my partner of nine years died suddenly. So when Dom top daddy meets a slutty fag bottom, good things can and do happen. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Savage Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Savage Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Hump 2022, My Dirty Little Film Festival, is in the final month of its tour for this year for Hump 2022, with stops this weekend in Denver, Philly, Tacoma, and Tucson. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now for tickets. Don't see your city or missed us when we came to your town. We have streaming links available every weekend of the tour. And also a quick reminder for Magnum subs, Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subscribers, is this Thursday, May 5th at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Can't wait to see you all there. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Craig Harper at CraigHarper19. Special thanks this week to Benjamin, Christie, and Tyler for helping me look something up in the OED. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Hold up. 